25th. Okay, if you've got your Bible, turn to June. Uh, June. What am I saying? <laughs> turn to June. Turn to John chapter 3. And uh, we'll be back in John chapter 3 one more time this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, uh, turn in. We'll be, uh, let's jump right down to uh, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 22 uh, this morning. Uh, we'll get there in just a moment. But before we get into it, I want to kind of recap just a little bit about where we've been over the last, uh, over the last couple of weeks. Um, last week, we looked at John 3.16. We started in John 3.16. One of the most popular, one of the most well-known verses of all time, right? I even pointed out, like, if you're going to go to a football game and you're going to see a sign in the end zone that's going to have anything related to Jesus on it, it's probably John 3.16. Some guy there or written across his chest, his, his, his bare chest in the end zone. John 3.16. Because it is such an important verse to the gospel. To understanding that God so loved the world, right? We didn't even chat. We didn't even talk about God's love last week. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Seems pretty important, right? Last week, we really honed in on the idea of believing. And not just the idea of believing, but believing that starts with that new birth. That when he's talking to Nicodemus in this chapter, right? You must be born again. And out of that comes this believing, but it's not just a believing here. It's not even just a believing here, but it's a believing that is lived out in our lives. We said that that Greek word that is used for believing is the same root word that you read for faith in other parts of the New Testament, right? And then we looked at faith without works, faith without the expression of the faith, without the doing and the living and the actual life lived to the glory of Christ, without that, that your faith is actually dead, we looked at how we need to get that believing right, that it's not just in our head, but that it's lived out in this life that has been born again of the Spirit of God. New birth means new life. New birth means new living that shows forth this new birth, this new being. And that's why I plainly asked us church people last week, do you truly believe it's a really easy thing. Yeah, of course. Of course I believe. But when we look at our life, does our life flow from that believing? Or are we merely just slightly more moral versions of our secular neighbors? The answer is not to just simply be better or to try harder, but to be renewed, made new by the Spirit of God. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Instead of pursuing the comforts this world promises, let's pursue the comforter that Jesus promised, right? He says, I'm going to send the comforter. I'm going to send the helper. And not only will he be with you, he's also going to be in you. Instead of pursuing the comforts this world promises, let's pursue the comforter that Jesus promised. Like I said last week, we didn't even touch on God's love. God so loves the world. This was revolutionary. For a Jew hearing Jesus speak here, right? For a Jew, God's love was pretty much limited to the children of Israel. 
for those who were God's chosen, God's holy people. And God's love is awesome for many reasons. And like we said last week, a big reason why it is so amazing is that it's not conditioned on you and me. For God so loved the world, not because the world was so lovely. For God so loved the world, not because the world had it all figured out and all together. For God so loved the world, not because the world first loved him. No, but he just loved the world because it's his nature. God is love. And God wanted to rescue and save the world. And so he loved the world so that he sent his one and only son. D.A. Carson points out that this world, it's so wicked, it's so unloving, it's so unlovely that the gospel writer, this same gospel writer in 1 John chapter 2 tells its readers not to love the world or anything in the world, not to participate in the same selfish, sinful pursuits that this world has to offer. But God loved that wicked world. God loves these wicked people so much that he gave his very best. He sent his son, his one and only son, to be lifted up, to die on a cross that whoever would look upon him, like he said to Nicodemus, right? The serpent, the bronze serpent was lifted up on the pole that whoever would look upon it would be saved, that the son of man, that Jesus was lifted up on that cross will be lifted up, that whoever would look upon him and believe, they shall be saved. His love is so great, so wonderful. Even as I wander, even when I wander, like, like a dumb sheep wandering from the fold of God, he pursues me. His Holy Spirit beckons me. His Holy Spirit convicts me when the living of my life turns in on itself, turns into selfishness and sinfulness. When my faith and my works don't meet up, he is so loving still that he beckons me and calls me back to himself. He loves me enough to convict me. He loves me enough to draw me back to himself, to help keep me in step with the spirit that I've been born of. That's how much God loves you. And that's how much God loves me. So let's read our text. Uh, John chapter 22. Excuse me. Chapter 3, verse 22. It says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. So Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. John was also baptizing, verse 23 at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming to be baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. A friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Let's stop right there and let's pray again. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit alive in your church. God, I thank you for those that you've drawn to this, this meeting today, this church today, this gathering today. God, maybe they don't know you. Maybe they haven't been born again of the Spirit of God. But maybe your Spirit has been beckoning them, calling them, drawing them away from this worthless life and drawing them to the worthiness, the worthiness of Jesus. God, I pray today in this service, God, that they would behold you, that they would turn, repent. God, that they would turn from their sinful life. And God, that they would put their faith and trust in you, marked with a life of believing, a life of living to the glory of Christ Jesus. God, stir us today. I pray for us in this place that our believers, us church people, God, if there is something complacent, something stale, something stagnant to our walk, God, revive us today. Wake up the sleepy, I pray, and allow us to be the church to the glory of Christ Jesus. We ask this in that powerful name. Amen. So today our text starts in verse 22 with some of John's disciples speaking with a particular Jew, and they're talking about what? Did you guys notice what they were talking about? Purification. They're talking about purification. Chances are they were talking about some ceremonial cleansing, and I don't know if you've paid attention thus far. Uh, in the book of John, in these first three chapters, I don't know if you've noticed how many times that we've made reference to or talked about purification. There's a lot of imagery that's taken place. There's a lot of mentions of it. There's a lot of talk about purification in these first three chapters. First off, it starts with John the Baptist, right, in that second half of chapter 1. The, the chapter opens up, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, right? Speaking of this eternal nature of Jesus, that he was there in the beginning, and that, that Word put on flesh and dwelt among us. But then we get into John the Baptist right away. And he's there and he's baptizing. Now, when we think of baptism, oftentimes, like, our mind goes to that, that beautiful modern expression, right? When we baptize, whether it's down at Lake Michigan or here at the local lake or whatever it might be, when somebody goes into the water, as we're commanded to by Scripture to be baptized, right, as they go into the water and they go down into the water, that is the watery grave, I want to remind you guys, when we follow Christ, okay, we're not following some teachings, okay? It's not, well, we are, but it's not merely following some teachings. It's not starting with following this new philosophy or this new teaching by Jesus to love one another and to serve one another and all of that. The first step in following Jesus is death. The first step in following Jesus is to follow him in his death that we would die to ourselves, that we would no longer live for us, that we would deny ourselves, take up that cross and follow him, that we would die daily to the passions of our flesh, that we would put to death everything that is earthly within us, that we would die and thus be raised to new life in him. Right? So the first step in following him is that. So we have this beautiful picture of that watery grave going down into the grave, dying to our old self, and raised to new life in Christ. But in John's time, right, baptism had been happening. That doesn't make sense. 
Because Jesus is there. He's just starting his ministry. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't gone into the tomb yet. And he hasn't rose from the dead yet. And so the baptism of John and baptism that had happened before Jesus was one of cleansing. It was one of water and washing and purification. And so when John is in the desert or when John is at the Jordan, he's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and he's calling people down into the water. It is a symbol of their, of their repentance and the washing and the cleansing that is found in the word. And so John's baptism was largely one of purification and repentance. And you continue on in John the Baptist's ministry, you see that it was centered around calling people to repentance and to be washed and cleansed from their sin. And while John is baptizing, Jesus comes up to him. Jesus walks up and John makes that beautiful declaration. What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. That sounds like cleansing. That sounds like purification. Right? John's there washing people, having people symbolically washed in the water, and he says, look, there's the lamb. Right? You, you know about the lamb in the Old Testament. You know about how the, the priest would go into the whole, like to offer that, that, that offering for the atonement of the people, the lamb, the spotless lamb that was shed, the blood that was shed, and then covers the sins of the people there. There is the lamb of God who's going to purify his people. Again, we're pointing to purification. The Lamb of God would purify his church, and not just one time, but eternally. Well, then you get to chapter 2, and you get to the wedding feast at Canaan, right? The very first miracle, water to wine, right? They run out of wine. Remember that there were how many stone jars? Six, right? Six stone jars. And those jars were used for what? Purification. Those were ceremonial purification jars for ceremonial purification washing. And we looked at all of that symbolism there, right? That he turns water into wine. Those jars are full. They are completely full that Jesus was going to completely fulfill the Old Testament laws and that that water turned to wine, right? Wine symbolizing his blood when we look at communion now. And that it's going to be his blood, that ceremonially makes us clean. That it's his blood that makes us clean. He fulfills the Old Testament. After that, Jesus goes from that wedding in Canaan. He actually goes into the temple. And what does he do in the temple? He cleanses the temple. Cleanses it. Purifies it. The imagery there is that Jesus then is replacing the temple. As he says, I'm going to destroy this temple, and, and in three days I will rebuild it. Right? That Jesus will replace it. Then we get into chapter 3. And he declares to Nicodemus, You must be born again, this teacher of Israel who comes to him by night. It seems as though the Holy Spirit has been speaking to his heart, illuminating the truth about Christ. And, and he's, he's a little nervous, so he's got to come by night to see what Jesus is all about to inquire of him. And he says, you must be born again. And what's interesting is he says it in two different ways. He says the exact same thing in two different ways, one in John chapter 3, verse 3, and one in John chapter 3, verse 5, two verses later. So let's look at both those verses. 
Verse 3, it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Two verses later, it says the same thing. Jesus says, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay? And now there's been some speculation about, okay, what does it mean to be born of water, to be born of spirit? Is this, what is he speaking about there? There's um, a kind of a not-so-great explanation. Like, well, when he's saying water, what he really means is that natural birth, that first birth, like when you all were born the first time. Like, and like, so if that's a requirement for new life, right, like everybody's got that first one nailed down because we're all here today sitting in it. It's not a great, not a great explanation. And, and my contention is, and a lot of other great theologians that I got this information from, would say that he's saying the same thing. Water and spirit is not two different things. It's saying this is one being born of the spirit, but he's usually two pictures here. And I think it keeps in some of the themes that we've seen through the entire book of John thus far. It's the same thing said two different ways. A great article I read by D.A. Carson this week. He says, okay, so where do we see water and spirit come together in the Old Testament? Do we have any other references, right? Scripture speaks to Scripture, so let's look at Scripture when we're trying to figure out Scripture. And he points to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Okay? Water and spirit coming together. So when he's saying you must be born of water and spirit, you have this water, this picture of cleansing, of purification, making clean, making pure. That's necessary for salvation. And it keeps in theme, like I said, with what we've read thus far in the book of John. It's a big reason why Jesus came to fulfill and what he came to do, right? To purify the church with his blood. But born again is likened to being born of water and spirit, right? The spirit of God. Not just cleansing the old, not just cleaning up the old, but making the old brand spanking new, the old dies, right? That's that picture of baptism that we have is buried, and then that new life comes through Christ. So being born again is being born of water, purified, cleansed, but also being made brand new. I have a white dog. I have a beautiful white uh, golden doodle. She's really, really light. She's a 40-pound polar bear. We got her for Christmas. The kids are loving her. She's a great dog. But she's white, and she gets dirty a lot. I have never given a bath to a dog so many times in my life. I bathed her last week, and I sent her outside. She was even dry at this point. I'm like, she's not going outside until she's dry, because as she's wet, she's just going to, all the dirt's going to stick to her. She was clean for like 20 minutes. She came back inside. I don't know if she crawled under my trailer or what. She had this nice big black splotch down her back. Right? So I clean her again. I, I even gave her a haircut to help get some of that grease or whatever it was off her hair. Like, like it, it was bad. 
And I think about it, okay? God loved you so much that he sent his son, that he sent his son to die on a cross for you, the spotless lamb to take away your sin, to purify you and make you clean. Do you realize that if you are in Christ Jesus, you stand before a holy God in right standing? What? With how sinful I am? with how wretched I am, with how many horrible things that I've done and horrible things that I've fought, I can stand before someone who dwells in unapproachable light. He's that pure and holy. Because of Jesus, I can. That should fill you with awe and worship. That's the power of the blood of Jesus. But what's awesome about it as well is that he didn't just make you clean and then send you out the door and hope that you didn't get dirty again. Like my white 40-pound polar bear. He looked at you and he said, man, these people need me inside of them. They need to be cleansed. They need to be made pure. They need, but they also need the power that comes in the new birth, the power that comes in the new living. So you must be born again of water and of spirit. It's so beautiful what God has done for us. So our text today starts with a discussion between John, John's disciples and some Jew about purification. Verse 25, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you wit bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and everybody's going to him. It almost sounds like they're a little bit jealous, doesn't it? Hey, that guy you were talking about, everybody's following him now. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. To the one who has, has the bride is the bridegroom, right? Jesus. To the one who, the who has the church, right? People are following him. That's the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at his voice. What a beautiful thing. And right here, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What a posture that John has. He knows his role. He knows that he is the one to just simply point to the one who is the one, to the one who is going to purify them from all of their sins, not with just a dip in some river, but by his blood, he's going to purify them and be their righteousness. And he makes that beautiful declaration. And, 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 and I, just, I, I just focused in, at first, first service, I just made mention that he focused in on verse 30. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. But I love it because the motivation for that comes just the line before. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is complete. That he's actually here, that he's actually arrived, that he's actually in our midst, and now my joy is complete, that he would increase and that I will decrease. See, we love this verse. We love this phrase. We put it on coffee mugs, right? He must increase, then I must decrease. 
We put it on stickers and calendars and all the little churchy things that we do that we think are so cool and clever, but they're really kind of hokey. There is a reality to this phrase that I think we largely have missed. There's a reality to the living and the powerful living that is, he must increase and I must decrease, that I think is lost on the American church. And it might be why it seems like the American church, instead of working with each other, is just competing in competition with one another. It's because we all want the increase of our things. Like, yes, him increase, but us increase too, kind of thing. Where it feels like we're more in competition with one another than on the same team, focused on the increase of Jesus and the expansion of his kingdom, not ours. Is there an intentional, real living in that phrase, he must increase and I must decrease? I'm going to bring it back to some of our discussion about having a real believing and a real faith that is marked by real living. We in the new birth, when we finally put our faith in Jesus, that's a miraculous thing in and of itself. I would not at all be interested in Christ if not the Holy Spirit active in my life already. It wouldn't make sense. The gospel would be foolishness to me. Why would I relinquish my life over to this person? What's in it for me? Right? That's the cry of our hearts so often. What's in it for me? But a, a life lived in the new birth is marked by radical living. And I think largely, I wonder if we get that. I wonder if some of us have grown a little stagnant, a little bit complacent, a little bit just ho-hum about the radical nature that a life lived in faith actually is. That there is an active, active living to the increase of Jesus in an active, active living to the decrease of me. As you sit there in your seat today, is your life marked with a real living? The same, my same question for you last week is the same question this week. Is your life marked by an effective living to the increase of Jesus and the decrease of you. You see, a lot of times we're just super passive about it. It's, it's something that we say, something that we would believe in our mind, in our heart, but nothing like I don't actively pursue the increase of Christ and the decrease of me. I'm so flippant about it, right? I need to speak of what he has done. I need to read the scriptures and behold the scriptures and see the beauty of Christ in the scriptures and speak the scriptures. Parents, in this place, your kids need to hear you speak the scriptures to tell what Jesus has done, not just in your life, in your life, yes, but from the scriptures. And then on the other side, 
God has done some awesome things in you. God has done some awesome things in you, confirming the story of the gospel, that you were once lost, but now you're found. You were once blind and dead, but now you see and are alive. We need to speak. That is a wonderful, beautiful, powerful way to increase Jesus, to share that gospel story in our lives, that everything we are and everything we have now points to him. Is that the case? I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'll say it many more times if you sit in these chairs on a Sunday morning, right? So often, I think we are lost on the radical thing that happens in the new birth in coming to Christ. We're so lost on it. Like, when we meet Jesus, like Paul on the road to Damascus, right? Your, your, your experience with Christ might not be seemingly quite that dramatic. Light from heaven, knocked off your horse, blind can't see. That probably didn't happen to you. You may have been in a church, may have been in, in your bedroom, may have been in a car, may have been with your aunt or your uncle or your grandma or somebody, somebody who just prayed over you. But I'm telling you, it was that dramatic if it was truly the new birth. It was. And at that moment, what happens is, is your life needs to be laid on the table before your Savior. Your life is now the offering. Your life is now that living sacrifice, and you just lay it on the table. And everything you are and everything you have now belongs to Jesus. But we have some weird mentality, like, like our, our, well, the good example is tithing. Is our finances, Right? You know, we, we talk about the tithe. We talk about the 10%. Give the 10%. Give the 10%. Give the 10%. Whatever it is. We don't even talk about it that much here. But we have that mentality where it's like, okay, I gave my 10%. Now the 90% is mine. Sorry to break it to you. It's not yours. All 100% belongs to him. Now you wrestle with the 10. Okay? But it's the same thing with your life. It's the same thing with your life. You don't, just tie, you don't just come to church and, and hand out some bulletins or go serve in the kids' areas or go serve at the sound booth or serve in the band and then go, okay, there's my 10%. Now the rest of my week is mine. It's garbage. It's not. It's not yours. It's all his. He is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Okay? And that's the radical thing. But instead we have this weird version of this add-on Jesus where my life didn't change the trajectory didn't change course, didn't change direction. I was going to say direction and trajectory together. It wasn't going to work. Right? Where he knocks you off your horse. And you finally see him for the first time. And everything becomes his. And now it's not like, okay, uh, Jesus, like, here's my thing. Come bless it. Jesus, here's my thing. Come bless it. It's Jesus, here's my thing. Do whatever you want with it. Because you must increase and I'm going to fight to decrease. Even as I say that, even as I say that, I think about, um, <laughs> I think about the idea of fighting to decrease. Um, came across Colossians again this week and, and, and working, working on this message. The language used here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 is a lot more just like blunt. Oftentimes the, 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 when you read the scriptures, it's like, oh, that's cool. Like, what does that really mean? Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death what is earthly, what is worldly in you. 
And then it gets some pretty daunting things, some like really dark things like sexual immorality. And then it gets like a little less. It's impurity, passions, evil, desires, a covetousness, right? Which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, right? That's the old life, the old self, when you were living in them. But now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have what? Put off the old self with its practices, and have done what? Put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It doesn't say hide and don't talk about that which is earthly in you. It doesn't say casually feed that which is earthly in you in secret. It doesn't say quietly indulge in all that it's earthly in you. Put to death. The Greek word there is, uh, I think it's nekros, which means to mortify. It means to make a corpse of it. It's pretty blunt. Make a corpse of what is earthly in you. I indulge. I incorporate it into my life. Growing up, I used to hear Christians talk about people who were worldly. They'd talk about other Christians who were worldly. It's kind of like an old school thing. I don't know if you grew up kind of fundamental Baptist or maybe uh, I grew up in some assemblies of God circles and they would talk about those other, those worldly Christians. And oftentimes it was like those who like played cards or like went to movies or stuff like that. I was thinking about that this week. I'm like, man... I think there's a pretty, pretty good group of us that's pretty worldly. And it's not movies and cards, but it's a lack of living to the increase of Jesus and the decrease of me, like actively living it. It's here's my life, Jesus bless it. Here's my life, Jesus try to keep up. And the crux of it is this this morning. Of course, it is the blood of Jesus that purifies us. It's the work of Christ. You see, the increase of Jesus, like he must increase, I must decrease, that's not to earn my righteousness. It's in response to what he's done. It's when my joy is complete in him because the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world, he called me his own and has made me brand new. So it's not to earn it. Please don't misunderstand today. It is not the thing that purifies us. It's not our works or our actions that save us or cause the new birth, but we are called to action, to effective living, to posture ourselves the same way that John postured himself, to actively live to the increase of he and to the decrease of me. Is that the posture of your life this morning? Is that the posture of your entire life this morning? Again, not to purify yourself, not to make yourself right, but to live out this glorious and beautiful and joyous calling that we have in the new life, in the new birth that we've received from Christ and his Holy Spirit. That we would radically and boldly and actively live to increase Jesus' 
and radically and boldly and actively decrease me. I was talking with somebody after service, after first service, and um, there's a lot of things in my life that are seemingly neutral. They're not sinful, overtly sinful. Um, But there's a lot of things in my life that I will indulge in, partake of, be distracted by. And again, like this, like all of this is really kind of weird and strange because I'm not telling you guys not to enjoy your three-day weekend. Like you can't have some downtime or you can't whatever. But what I'm saying is, is that even in that, all of it should be laid on the table before Jesus and wrestled with. We all should wrestle with it. There's things in my life that I'm going, wow, it seems so neutral. Like going to bed early. <laughs> like it could be super deeply spiritual though. And the way that it affects my living, the way that I'm indulging in, in flesh or the way that I'm indulging in the world, the natural things of the world that aren't overtly sinful, but it's not fighting for or killing, therefore, what is earthly in me, like fighting for the increase of him and the decrease of me. Even in that, like I'm wrestling. Even in some of those simple, like seemingly neutral things, I'm wrestling because he deserves it all. He deserves it all, and he asks all, asks for all, and I want to be a church that gives him all. So as we conclude today, again, like we do most Sundays, we're going to sing a song at the end of service, and I would ask you to respond. If you would like prayer, um, don't be timid and ask for prayer. Maybe there's a good friend sitting next to you, Ask them to pray with you. There's going to be folks in the back corner here who are willing to pray with you. If you would like prayer, please ask for prayer. Have someone pray with you. Ask if you can pray with somebody else. If they won't ask, you ask them. Like, that's the one thing, man. I want our church to get better at that, just being open to prayer. Because there's one thing, there's one thing about, like, I don't know, there's one thing about hearing it from somebody's voice, but then all of a sudden, like, to to respond between you and the God of the universe, the Holy Spirit in your seats, and then ask someone else to pray and and invite the Holy Spirit into that moment. Like, my fear is this, that we hear these words today and we hear this text today and we just go out of here and and 95% of us are going to do nothing with it. And our life is just going to, like, we need to sit in these moments sometimes. We need to invite the Holy Spirit and respond because again, what I don't want you to do, just like I talked about last week, I don't want you to leave this place today and just go, oh, I need to be better. I need to be better. No, what you need to do is you need to be renewed by the Spirit. You need to sit with the Holy Spirit, have Him wash over you, renew you. And yes, out of that, you need to maybe make some decisions. You may, may, may need to restructure some of your life and put everything on the table before Him again. But don't skip that first step. Don't skip that first step of actually just sitting with the Holy Spirit. But Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. Make us your people. Make us your church to the glory of your name alone. Help us, O God. Fill us, O God. That we might live to the increase of Jesus and the decrease of us. 
and that the world, our little worlds, would be transformed because of it. That people would see you and behold you and cherish you as supreme, as the way, the truth, and the life. God, we thank you. Let us find joy in you. God, that our joy would be complete in the increase of you, the decrease of us. Help us respond to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.